podcast from First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy, and this is the fifth Sunday after Pentecost message, which also happens to be close to Independence Day in America. It will be on July 2nd, 2023, that this sermon will be preached. The passages from which I'll be speaking come from two different Psalms, Psalm 13 and part of Psalm 89. I'd like to share those with you as we go into this time of contemplation and have a chance to consider God's Word and perhaps an angle that you've never done so before. So thank you for joining with us. Remember, our website is firstbaptistchurchofmadison.weebly.com, and we love to hear from you and know that you're listening and know that you're doing all right. First from Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. From Psalm 89. I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth, I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to my servant, David. I will establish your descendants forever. I will build your throne for all generations. In our worship on this day, it is right and fitting that we understand and embrace the unity we have with the worldwide Christian church. The faith we hold has an amazing feature, a thing absent in most other religious traditions. You see, Christian belief is a cross-cultural, multinational belief. Our brothers and sisters are in Asia, Europe, Australia, South, and North America. Christians speak every language found on earth and express their churches through a variety of societal practices. Christians come in every color and have many political views and economic situations. We may even be offended by some aspects of the religious practices of others within our faith, our spiritual kin, and they may in turn not understand us entirely. Nevertheless, we are one faith, knit together by our hope of glory, the resurrected one, Jesus Christ. Whenever we meet, wherever we gather, we need to know that we are celebrating our diverse participation in Christ's kingdom. 
Now, understanding all of that does not preclude that we express our faith in the context of our nation and cultures. I say cultures because our nation is multicultural. Even within this congregation, there are more than a few cultural differences. What is more, the church as Jesus established it and the first Christians spread it is designed to encourage ways for those of differences to come together. This is good for us, and it is, I believe, what God wants us to do. Because of it, Christianity has been a success story across the globe and through the ages. We are blessed to be Americans. We sing God bless America, and we mean it. America is our home and the place and the people where and with whom we live out our faith. A Christian can love both Christ and the nation. Christian patriots embrace the concept of being a witness for the kingdom of God by loving their countrymen and women. My own perspective has been influenced greatly by my story. I came from a family that has sacrificed to serve this nation. Every male and some of the females of my family wore the uniform. Many of them suffered the hell of combat. My own father was wounded in Belgium fighting the evil of Nazism. When finally he was put on a ship and arrived home in New York Harbor, as he gazed upon the Statue of Liberty, he promised he was home to stay, and he did. I, too, have been stationed overseas on three occasions. I can still remember after one of those tours, one that took me to a combat zone in a vastly different land, that upon landing in Philadelphia, I solemnly bent down and kissed the land as I stepped off of the plane. I love America, not because it is perfect, not because it is chosen by God above other nations, not because our history is unblemished. No, I love America because it is my home. This is the place, the people I know. It is here God has called me to be a witness, a servant, a patriot. The ancient Hebrew psalmist, I believe, felt the same way about their homeland. They saw their nation and people as distinctive. They too loved their home, but they, like we, had also mixed opinions, mixed emotions. At times they felt blessed, and on other occasions they wondered if God had not abandoned them. They complained because the nation was not what they thought it should be. They sometimes even expressed their grievances in angry, despondent words. On other occasions, they celebrated. One might even wonder upon reading the Bible if there might be some kind of spiritual schizophrenia at work here. Listen as I read some of the words of the Psalms. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And then the other psalm expresses this. I will sing of your steadfast love, O Lord, forever. With my mouth I will proclaim your faithfulness to all generations. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. 
And this thought after some contemplation is in both Psalms. I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. What does it mean to be a Christian patriot? There might be many ideas about that, but one notion that should never be included is that a Christian patriot is defined by hatred. Misguided patriotism storms walls, curses those who disagree, and threatens violence to get its way. Let's be clear, those who carry Christian symbols and commit criminal violence are anything but patriotic Christians representing the Christ, the Prince of Peace. What does it mean to be a Christian who through faith expresses a healthy patriotism? It goes far beyond flag-waving bumper sticker preaching, and brass bands blaring. To be a Christian patriot means to understand the way our faith is expressed in our God-given place of life and service. To that end, I am sure there are many things that might be said, but I'd like to offer a few specific suggestions about what it really means to be a Christian patriot. First, and I've already mentioned this, but let me say it one more time. To be a Christian patriot is to understand that God loves everyone. Even those who are different. Even those with whom we disagree. And even those who may even despise us for our faith and values. I believe that Jesus clearly meant this when one day he told a young nationalistic man a story that I hope changed his life. When asked, who is my neighbor, Jesus responded by telling a parable we most commonly refer to as the story of the Good Samaritan. Now, just for the record, Samaritans were not considered neighbors, but as freaks. Freaks who were different, had disagreeable ideas, who they believed despised them just as much as they were despised. One of the central truths of this story is this idea, God loves everyone. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to accept this truth and then learn to apply it in our daily living. Love for our neighbors, meaning our fellow human beings, is a Christian patriotic value. We embrace this aspect of Christian patriotism this way. We take seriously the words of Jesus who taught the basis of democracy. Love your neighbor as you love yourself means my neighbor is anyone I encounter. And that person has just as much value in God's eyes as I do. How are we to do that when there is so much variety out there? Living in community with others requires humility and compromise. Change is brought about not by force, but by love, kindness. Respect and persuasive perseverance. To be a Christian patriot is to admit my humanity and susceptibility to being wrong. How very easy it is to be wrong. Christians know that by being ignorant or poorly processing the information we have been given is ingrained in our humanity. We admit our cloudy lens of intolerance or habit. The Apostle Paul himself openly admitted that he saw through a glass darkly. Openness to learning and humility is not weakness, but our own humanity. But to own our own humanity and cease trying to be God. 
We are not God. And as the psalmist learned, we do not need to fight to protect God. He is in charge. We can trust him. In his time, he will put all things right. Next, to be a Christian patriot is to learn a little Latin. Maybe Americans don't all know Latin. I certainly do not. But I do know these words. E pluribus unum, out of many one, forms the foundational framework of the Christian religion. It is written on the scroll held in the beak of the American eagle on the dollar bill. To be a patriotic Christian is, not only, is to not only accept that concept, but to celebrate its truth. Oh, how wonderful life can be when we see the many colors of the world around us. To be a Christian patriot also means to refuse to harm, force, or manipulate others, claiming the end justifies the means. Instead of inflicting others with punishment, we are called to identify with the most well-known symbol of punishment. We take up our cross, enduring its difficulty because of its message. The cross has a power that goes beyond our powers to control. The hardened Roman soldier who led the crucifiers of Jesus knew this when he admitted, surely this man was the Son of God. Perhaps he heard Jesus pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And one Roman legionnaire was changed. That kind of change does not happen because of power over, but through love of. Finally, to be a Christian patriot, the church must be the first place of love, acceptance, respect, affirmation, learning, and hope. It should be here where we learn to put into practice, love your neighbor as you love yourself. To do so is to be a citizen of the kingdom of God and a true patriot, a true Christian patriot. The psalmist in their day were human enough to feel down, aggrieved, even depressed about the nation. Sometimes they no doubt wondered where God was. Did he need their help to force things to be right? Maybe they thought a well-placed execution or an unscalable wall was in order. But then somehow the light broke through. Then it was remembered that God is God. And God is good all the time. And all the time God is good. And then the words of holy patriotism spilled from the heart. I declare that your steadfast love is established forever. Your faithfulness is as firm as the heavens. I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Let us pray. Lord, on this day, when we think about your love and our nation and the need we all have, help us to see that you have always been on our side, encouraging us to open our eyes and see the great love you have for the entire world. Help us then to show that love through our patriotic hearts of love for our neighbors. God bless America. Amen. Welcome once again to the podcast from First Baptist Church of Madison, North Carolina. I'm glad that you've joined us. Continue to share God's good news in all you do in life. Remain positive, hopeful people. Listen to the Holy Spirit as he blows through your hearts and reminds you that God is with us 
and he will make all the difference in the world. I'm Dr. Chuck McGathy. I welcome you to this podcast we've been doing now for four seasons, and this is our 27th podcast. This sermon today is on the occasion of the sixth Sunday after Pentecost, and the scripture passage from which I'll be preaching comes out of the book of Genesis, the 24th chapter, selected verses. Instead of trying to read all of that ahead, I'll just include it in the context of this sermon. So listen for it. Now, churches and even denominations these days are undergoing a great deal of stress. In the aftermath of intentionally excluding several very large churches this year, The Southern Baptist Convention was further diminished recently by the unintentional loss of another large congregation. The 10,000-member Elevation Church in Charlotte has chosen to leave the SBC ostensibly because of the banishment of women from the pulpit. Other normal-sized churches of less than 100 members are not immune from the seismic shifts that are affecting all of the religious world today. Problems range from aging membership to a decline in giving to political turmoil within congregations and a severe shortage of experienced and educated clergy capable of pastoral leadership in these trying times. For some, the difficulties of these days and the forecast of the future is so ominous that the very death of the church itself is feared. I mean to tell you, even ministers are losing heart. And if those called to minister the gospel lose heart, can our lay leadership be far behind? I want to tell you a different story today. I want you to hear the everlasting story of hope. Never forget that ours is a resurrection faith. The Bible is replete with example after example of how God was able to bring people, communities, and nations back to life when all of the experts said it was all over. I have one such story I'd like to share with you today about a little Presbyterian church in northwest Florida. I know this church rather well and through the years saw her numbers dwindle. The congregation, though, was comprised of loving and committed members. They faithfully supported that church, even though they did not know how it could last much longer. One day, while on a trip to Florida, I visited that congregation. There were now... Clearly twice as many people in attendance, and not only that, but kids. There were young, vibrant faces, and their parents were there too. The breath of life had filled the sails of that church. What happened? Two things. First, they welcomed everyone. Second, a new family moved into the community and found a place of welcome In short, they got together. God did it. He put new life into a church and into a family looking for a church. 
Then another family joined them, and before long, everything looked different. That beautiful church is doing fine today. They are doing fine because they let God do a beautiful thing among them. They let God help them find each other. Today's scripture is about getting together. It is the story of Rebecca. Her story begins in the 24th chapter of Genesis. The lessons of her life, her spirit and her heart are too good and important for us to ignore. So let's think on her today. Listen as we learn about this remarkable human being. Her story begins with the narrative of Abraham's servant who has been dispatched to find a proper wife for his master's son. The following words say it all. The servant said, I'm the servant of Abraham. God has blessed my master. He's a great man. God has given him sheep and cattle, silver and gold, servants and maidservants, camels and donkeys. And then to top it off, Sarah, my master's wife, gave him a son in her old age. And he has passed everything on to his son. My master made me promise. Don't get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whose land I live. No, go to my father's home, back to my family, and get a wife for my son there. I said to my master, but what if the woman won't come with me? He said, God, before whom I've walked faithfully, will send his angel with you. And he'll make things work out so that you'll bring back a wife for my son from my family, from the house of my father. Then you'll be free from the oath. If you go to my family and they won't give her to you, you will also be free from the oath. Well, when I came this very day to the spring, I prayed, God, God of my master Abraham, make things turn out well in this task I've been given. I'm standing at this well. When a young woman comes here to draw water and I say to her, please give me a sip of water from your jug. And she says, not only will I give you a drink, I also will water your camels. Let that woman be the wife God has picked out for my master's son. I had barely finished offering this prayer when Rebecca arrived, her jug on her shoulder. She went to the spring and drew water and I said, please, can I have a drink? She didn't hesitate. She held out her jug and says, drink, and when you're finished, I'll also water your camels. I drank, and she watered the camels. I asked her, whose daughter are you? She said, the daughter of Bethuel, whose parents were Nahor and Milcah. I gave her a ring for her nose, bracelets for her arms, and bowed in worship to God. I praised God. The God of my master Abraham, who led me straight to the door of my master's family to get a wife for his son. Now tell me what you are doing, going to do. If you plan to respond with a generous yes, tell me. But if not, tell me plainly so I can figure out what to do next. She said, I'm ready to go. So they sent them off, their sister Rebecca with her nurse and Abraham's servant with his men. And they blessed Rebecca saying, you're our sister, live bountifully. And your children triumphantly. Rebecca and her young maids mounted the camels and followed the man. The servant took Rebecca and set off for home. Isaac was living in the Negev. He had just come back from a visit to Beer Lahai Roy. 
In the evening, he went out into the field while meditating. He looked up and saw camels coming. When Rebekah looked up and saw Isaac, she got down from her camel and asked the servant, Who is that man out in the field coming toward us? That is my master. She took her veil and covered herself. After the servant told Isaac the whole story of the trip, Isaac took Rebekah into the tent of his mother. He married Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. So Isaac found comfort after his mother's death. Have you ever heard or maybe used the expression, you go girl? Have you ever paused to think about what it means and why it exists and why it is used? In today's cultural milieu, the roles of women have changed and are continuing to change. Some of these changes are regarded as negative and dangerous. Nevertheless, the scene is changing as women are now more and more seen in roles formerly restricted to men. The world and culture into which I was born could hardly conceive of women as national political leaders, doctors, lawyers, firefighters, fighter pilots, police, and pastors. You go, girl, speaks to that. The Bible and the Christian faith also speak to that, though it is often obscured through the context of the surrounding environment. It reminds me of watching a play where the said is so ornate and distracting that the actual dialogue and interaction of the actors is lost. So too, if we are not careful, we might miss the message by being too focused on the background. So understand the context of the biblical message, but primarily focus on what happens in contrast to the context. The message of the life of Rebecca is a foil against the backdrop of a culture where the idea of you go girl would have been considered hilarious and idiotic. Women were considered as property less than men and even a bit vile. When misogyny rears its ugly head in our world, we are appalled. And when anything other than the latent disrespect and distrust of women was displayed in the ancient world of the Middle East, well, it is notable. And there is example after example of this in the scripture as well as in the early Christian tradition. In other words, when we look at the message of the drama and learn from that instead of the decoration of the set, then we get it. And much of that message is, you go, girl. The lessons of the experience of a young woman named Rebecca are not confined to women, but also apply to anyone who has ever felt the weight of restrictions and prejudices that have worked to keep them down and make their pathway much, much harder. As we learn from her life, we may all take heart and fully embrace the God who tells us all to get up and go. Let's start the story by asking the question, why? Why did Abraham send his servant over miles of trackless desert to find an acceptable girl for his beloved boy Isaac? The values taught the local Canaanite girls through a toxic religion were unacceptable. 
If Abraham was going to see his offspring multiply and become as numerous as the stars, then he surely did not want a daughter-in-law who would think it just might be the will of God to sacrifice his grandchild to the fire of the god Molech. No doubt prompted by that thought and fear, Abraham, who had very nearly sacrificed his own son until God told him to stop, sent his trusted servant back to his homeland to see if he might convince one of his kinfolk to go on the biggest blind date in history. Right here might be a good moment to say a word about traditional marriage. We think what we know of marriage and courting as traditional, but actually for most of human history, it was very different. Most marriages were arranged. Sometimes these arrangements were for political power, security, or just plain financial gain. Young women were bartered as a commodity on sale to the highest bidder. Knowing all that makes this historical record quite notable. You see, there is apparently some choice that Rebecca has in the matter. The servant wonders if she will come. Abraham assures him an angel will help him convince the girl to leave her home and travel to a place she has never seen to marry a man she did not know. Apparently, it wasn't just a matter of price. Rebecca had a choice. In order to identify the right woman for his master's son, the servant of Abraham sets up a test. The details are not the most important thing here. What is important is the character of the person who can courageously go to a new place with optimism, love, and faith. How amazing is this confident young woman? She senses God acting in her life and responds with a spirit of generosity and courage. Listen closely to his description of Rebecca. When Rebecca arrived, her jug on her shoulder, she went to the spring and drew water and said, Please, can I have a drink? And I said, please, can I have a drink? She didn't hesitate. She held out her jug and says, drink, and when you're finished, I'll also water your camels. I drank and she watered the camels. Please do not be tempted to view this as just another example of oppression of women forced to serve any passing male. That is not what is happening here. Wells were not public property. They were fiercely guarded and often the scenes of hostile action. When Re what Rebecca is doing here is demonstrating hospitality to a stranger. While she could have said no or fled or alerted the family, she engages the stranger and not only meets his needs, but cares for his animals as well. It was an act of bold hospitality. Hospitality is the characteristic that both women and men must have to go forward into an unknown future. However, it is exactly the opposite from what we so often see. When threatened or even facing challenges to change, some have retreated behind walls and hunkered down wishing the stranger read problem will go away. That response lacks both love and confidence, the Bible consistently argues for another response. Like Rebecca, we are called to hospitality. 
Personally, I like the definition of Christ-like hospitality given by the theologian Henry Nouwen. He writes, Hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but to offer them space where change can take place. It is not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom not disturbed by dividing lines. Those are not throwaway words penned by some wild radical with a theological degree. These are the thoughtful words of an educated biblical scholar and pastor. Now one understood long ago, about 50 years ago, that the heart of biblical and Christian spirituality is inextricably linked to this idea. The idea that we are most fully human and most like our creator when we engage in hospitality. The story of Rebecca is just one more brick in the massive pillar of hospitality that defines our faith. I do not have the inclination or time to explore all of the ways some are trying to remove bricks from this pillar while simultaneously claiming to represent our faith. I'm usually both sad and disgusted by this and hope you can tell the difference. In case I have not made myself clear before, let me say it once again another way. If we are going to be Christ followers, we will be people who welcome strangers, make friends, respect one another, create room for change, but never force or manipulate others into confessions they do not believe. We will be inclusive and pluralistic because we love God and have confidence that in the end, His truth is the truth all people seek and need. What really empowers the spirit of hospitality is the divine intervention that changes our perspective. Reverend Burt Montgomery, who pastors University Baptist Church in Starksville, Mississippi, offers an explanation. He writes, One day in March of 1958, almost 17 years after he turned his back on the world and entered the Abbey of Gethsemane near Bardstown, Kentucky, the Trappist monk Thomas Merton walked down streets of Louisville. There, standing on a busy corner, Merton said he was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that he loved all the people around him. Even though they were total strangers, he sensed that he belonged to all of them and all of them belonged to him. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, he wrote. He, Merton, said that because we belong to God, our attitude toward others changes. And because everyone else also belongs to God, our attitude changes. We just happen to be conscious of it and to make a profession out of this consciousness. Think back. Think back once again to that moment in the desert when a young girl encounters strangers at a well. She could have fled. She could have hid in her father's tent. She could have called for strong men to put an aggressive, to post an aggressive response. She could have done other things, yet what she does is welcome. 
this thirsty man and care for him. She goes beyond that to provide for his tired camels. She is hospitable. And because she does all that, the course of human history is altered. As she makes her decision to go with the servant of Abraham, Rebekah is sent off with a blessing. It is recorded in the NRSV this way, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of myriads. May your offspring gain possession of the gates of their foes. That expression, thousands of myriads, is unfamiliar to us. Eugene Peterson, from whose translation it was just read, puts it within our reach. You, you are our sister. Live bountifully and your children triumphantly. They are sending her off with a, you go girl. And today we can follow her example of courage, of hospitality, of faith. We too can model the ethic of welcome of strangers and engagement with those who come from far away. Or we can refuse to do so. The choice is entirely yours. The choice is entirely mine. The future of the church will be determined based on how we believe and how we follow Jesus. He said, I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. That is the real Jesus. That is the spirit of the God of Rebekah. So go, girl, boy, man, or woman. Go in his name and with his love. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, help us to be like Rebekah, full of hope and wonder. Lord, help us be on the lookout for those like Rebekah, full of ideas and spirit. Help us welcome them and so see your great love expressed through your church. Amen.